0: You're listening to 92Y Talks. In this episode, Barney Frank sits down with In the News moderator Jeff Greenfield to discuss his journey from Bayonne, New Jersey to the U.S. Congress, where he played a vital role in the struggle for personal freedom and economic fairness. His experience led him to write his new memoir, Frank A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same Sex Marriage. The conversation was recorded on April 12th. 2015 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So
1: most of the time, watching the U.S. House of Representatives is like watching paint dry without the spine-tingling thrills that come from watching drying latex. Uh, Predigested sentiments prepared by a staff, very sharp contrast to the thrust and parry at debates that you would see in the British House of Commons. But for several decades there was no a notable exception when barney frank massachusetts congressman took the floor tvs in washington and a lot of other places began to click on c-span and the reason was to watch one of the sharpest and quickest and yes sometimes funniest practitioners of the art of floor debate but that account really doesn't take the measure of the man for half a century in boston city hall and the massachusetts state legislature and for almost 35 years in the u.s house Barney Frank was one of the most eloquent and effective champions of the increasingly beleaguered cause of liberalism or progressivism. He was fighting the tide of conservatism and on more than one occasion, indeed many, at the same time questioning and challenging the tactics and the assumptions on his own side of the aisle. Uh, For many of these years also, as he recounts in this extraordinary book, Frank, he was fighting another battle, challenging the laws and customs that kept gay Americans on the margins of public life while concealing his own identity as a gay man, a concealment he ended well over a decade ago. The arc of his public life, and it's a theme of the book, traces a shift in public attitudes that is remarkable. On the one hand, the culture has dramatically shifted toward acceptance of gay men and women, indeed, The objection to gay marriage is in many areas a political liability. At the same time, the American attitude toward the role of government to making the country more economically fair has withered. His book is a detailed account of why and how both of these things have happened and what might be done about it. You might find his cause persuasive or not. What I can promise you is that there is not a more engaging bracing advocate anywhere on the political spectrum than our guest tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Barney Frank. Welcome. Thank you. I told Barney that I was first aware of him in a letter to the New York Times written in 1964 when Strom Thurmond announced he was leaving the Democratic Party for the Republican Party. And in that letter, Mr. Frank observed.
2: "There was a uh, reminder that sometimes it is indeed
1: better to give than to receive. <laughs> okay, let's start with the news since this uh, is called in the news. Uh, the suspense is over. Hillary Clinton is running for president. <laughs> You were a strong supporter of hers in 08, in the primary. Any reason that you might be changing your attitude? Uh? No, I am
2: very supportive of her. I, uh, I am struck by this effort on the part of some to say, look, she's really uh, too far to the right or, or not liberal enough. I, the fact is, as Paul Krugman, I thought, did a very good job of documenting in the 2008 Situation. I mean, Krugman is our best, the best at applying economic reasoning to public affairs. She was actually to the left of Barack Obama on most domestic issues. And uh, I think she is very well suited to be a candidate. And I do, I know I have friends who say, oh, gee, why, why don't we have a nice, tough primary? Wouldn't that be good? And I just wonder what they were doing in 2012 when Mitt Romney had a nice tough primary, and I don't think that was helpful to him, and I don't understand why we would want to replicate that effort.
1: Understanding the role of chance in political life, which is a theme in this book that you hit repeatedly, that, you know, for all the determinists, don't forget chance, so putting that on the table, is there a plausible obstacle to her nomination at this point?
2: No. Um, The fact is that she, she represents a pretty broad spectrum of the Democrats' views. You and I have been through periods when the Democratic Party was very badly split, you know, back uh, really starting in the, with Vietnam and then to some extent over race. Um, and I think at this point we're in a happier position uh, of uh, being relatively unified compared to the Republicans who are at this point much more divided on, on major issues. Uh, so I do not see any substantive challenge, and I I think you see this reflected in Elizabeth Warren, of whom I am very fond and very proud that I've had a good working relationship with her. She's one of the blurbers of my book, Uh, and I think she quite correctly says, no, she's not running for president, has no plans to do so, because uh, the the best thing for the Democrats to do, for liberals to do, is to get behind a candidate who has a broad degree of support and get right into the final election.
1: Now, third, there is a half-truth, three-quarter truth, that third terms are very tricky for a political yes, party. Sir. The last time the Democrats pulled it off was uh, Andrew Jackson to Martin Van Buren. <laughs> and since 1951, only Reagan to Bo- the first Bush did it, although it has to be said that three times, Nixon in 60, Humphrey in 68, Gore, they came close. But if it's important for the Democratic nominee, whoever she may be, <laughs> to create a certain kind of difference. I don't think, well, let me ask you, I don't think she can run the way Bush did in 88 as the third term for Obama.
2: two things. First, I would say, historically, uh, Harry Truman didn't get a third term, he got a fifth. So that was, uh, and also, as you point out, um, particularly Al Gore against George Bush, our side got way more votes. I mean, a little bit of an aside, but George Bush is actually very lucky that Florida was as messed up as it is. Because all the focus was on Florida where he was voted by the Supreme Court to have won by a few hundred votes. Even with that, he lost the popular vote by the largest margin by far of any president in history. And if Florida had not been as contested, that's what the focal point would have been. And, and it would have, I think, given us some more momentum against him. But finally, I think you're right. Um, for one thing, um, the public is in a more negative mood about everybody. So that this is very different than 1980, uh, 1988. And uh, yeah, I do think she has to, and has a right to, express that she's not just the third term of Barack Obama. Uh, On the other hand, if she does this the way I hope she will, uh, we have the following. Here are the issues in the 2016 election. Should we or shouldn't we continue to have some financial reform? Because every Republican candidate right now is committed to going back to the bad old days of total deregulation. Should we do anything about climate change? Should we do anything about Citizens United and the flood of money? Um, those are all issues that will be very much in the ballot. There are some others that will appeal to a lot of Democrats. I think it is very clear, if you look at the balance in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is now about four and three quarters to four and one quarter in favor of maintaining Roe versus Wade. Kennedy is uh, 75, 25. The next president will be able to appoint Supreme Court justices who will determine whether abortion remains essentially the choice of the woman or is turned around. So I think when we get into it, that this is going to be an election in which the issues are sharper than they have been in a very long
1: time. I would just observe that this argument for the Supreme Court has been made with metronome-like regularity, and I have yet to see a case where voters, where voters were actually moved by that.
2: That's before Citizens United. I understand that. But I have found in my conversations that there is a public awareness now. Well, two things. First of all, a lot of women are very frightened on the abortion issue with what's going on in the States. But even more than that, I think uh, this question of the unlimited flow of money, it is one of the questions I am asked most often when I speak. And people say, what can we do about this threat to democracy, which it is. And the answer is only one thing, elect a president who will reverse it. So I, I have not argued this. I've, I've tried to argue the Supreme Court to persuade people, but I've never used it as a predictor. But I do think that uh, uh, with abortion and and, uh, campaign finance,
1: it will resonate this time. I just have to share this with you in the audience because you are a lover of the language and you use it in a way that most politicians could not in their wildest. I was reading the Washington Post story today about Hillary Clinton's impending journey to Iowa to participate in what I regard as a completely phony, extortionist, anti-democratic caucus system. But that's another point. No, it's a good point. (laughs) But it says, this is what they wrote, that Iowans are expecting Hillary to interact, quote, with enormous intimacy. Now, I know from pandering to Iowans, but this seems to me to take... No, I think, actually, if you had asked me what is enormous intimacy, I would have
2: thought it was the, an advertisement for a porn movie.
1: Well, they haven't gone there yet. Well, we'll see. Anyway, okay. Uh, the other thing that, that and it, it's part of what makes this book, uh, for me, a, a, a joy to read. I mean, you know, I'm getting no cut of this, but if you like politics and want to understand it at a, both at a granular, as they say, an enormously entertaining way, this, this is it. But one of the things in this book that Barney writes, that you write, sir, is you hate campaigning. And you write, anytime, if you hear someone tell you how much they like the campaign trail, you are likely listening to either a sociopath or a liar. And I'm wondering, have you, <laughs> have you walked that past Bill Clinton?
2: No, actually, he may be the exception, although even he, I think, when he's campaigning for himself, doesn't like it, campaigning for other people is is fun. Campaigning for yourself, uh, you know, in the first place, there's one of the things about running for office. The stakes are the highest of anything people do since they've outlawed dueling. Um, if you're a lawyer, the client goes to jail. If you're a doctor, the patient dies. Uh, if you're a teacher, the student flunks. But if you're a politician, you're out of a job on election day. I mean, you are all or nothing. Plus, you uh, have to spend all your time uh, trying to impose yourself on people who wish you would stop bothering them. And by definition, you campaign for people who are not your wildest and most enthusiastic fans, and, uh, uh, and then you throw in the money raising. And uh, I, I doubt that even Bill Clinton liked campaigning for himself. Okay.
1: So that would exempt him from your observation about people who like campaigning and what they're yeah, like? Yeah, I, I think okay. he, he lies when he says he does. Okay. By the way, I, 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 I want to give you a shot at this. The book has gotten uh, overwhelmingly huzzahs. The one puzzling note was the New York Times is it right to call him the, a gay columnist? I mean, yeah, no. He, Frank Bruni staked out that. Seemed role. to be. I don't know what he was expecting from your book, but he seemed to feel. I thought the book was enormously candid about mistakes, about strategy, about all kinds of things, and he was one of the few who. It was puzzling to me, and obviously disappointing.
2: He said it was clear and coherent and persuasive on a couple of issues, but he said, and I was frankly appalled by it. I got to say, maybe I'm a little biased that uh, while I talked about my uh, being in the closet, he was disappointed that I did not talk about my romantic longings, how much sex I was having, w- and whether or not I wanted more. And I think, I mean, I, I was frankly disappointed that a gay man writing about another gay man would say that. I don't think anybody asked Leon Panetta or, or Robert Gates to talk more about how much <laughs> sex they were having. Um, and, uh, I think, but here's the problem, I have to do a visual. I think the problem was he may have felt misled. If you notice, this is the publisher picture, the title is Frank. I think he thought it was cut off and then it had said 50 shades of Frank. <laughs> and that's what he was looking for.
1: Well, actually in a non-sexual well, way, it is 50 shades. But I
2: know what he was looking for now and you've <laughs> given me the clue. He was looking for enormous intimacy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's Hillary's next book. I think. Um, Okay, but when you look at where the country was when you set out, I mean, you're very, you know, it's 1954, you're 14, you're realizing that you like guys, and you're looking at a country where, where, where the whole idea, uh, we didn't even call it gay then, right? Homosexuality, homosexual. criminalized in most states, marginalized, can't work for the government, security risk, all that. And at the same time, you point out an enormous trust in government. And so, over the next several decades, we go like this, um, which is, I think, the you know the, co- the core of your, of your book. What what do you think, and particularly in the last decade, 2004, 17 or 18 states vote to ban gay marriage. Now, uh, it's virtual certainty; it's coming. How it may not seem like a fast change, maybe it. Buttoned. Oh, very fast, so it is. Why? It's, it, this is without question the fastest
2: thorough social change in American history because it all starts in 1969 and it accelerates and accelerates. I think um, the fundamental thing is that our reality refuted the prejudice. Before 1969, we hid our reality. People didn't know who we were, so all they had was a nasty stereotype. And as people began to tell people who we were, the contrast between this negative uh, image and ourselves, he wrote it, and people began to say, oh, well, that's my brother, that's my teammate, that's my patient. And, you know, there's one thing about, about this prejudice. How valid can it be, people began to think, if I, I'm supposed to hate this person, but having known her for 13 years, I didn't realize I was supposed to hate her until she told me. I mean, how valid is that inherently? And th- that marriage was a subset of that. As long as there was no marriage, and I, I appreciate this is a, such a central question. In America, it's not considered appropriate to say that you're gonna deny people something because you don't like them. That, that's bigoted, that's you know H. L. Mencken. Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. Nobody wants to be in that position. <laughs> so our opponents had to invent negative social consequences, they had to argue that they didn't want us to marry not because, I think the real reason that the, the major opponents of marriage didn't want us to marry is very simple. One of us was terrible and two of us together was disgusting and that, and that was it. But you couldn't say that. So they said if you allow them to get married, it will destabilize society, it will undermine marriage. And then, and, and that's a terrible vicious cycle to be in because as long as people hear only the negative consequences and you have no examples to counteract that, you're in trouble. So then, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court says, "Okay, we're going to have marriage in Massachusetts." And from that point on, I was confident we were going to win. We had that beachhead, and what happened? 2004. You're right; they, they they didn't have any experience. But over time, the argument that same-sex marriage was going to have negative effects on other people crumbled, and and when having staked all their political clout on an argument that was refuted by reality, it crumbled.
1: It's one of the curious things, or maybe it's not so curious, in fact, I think it's explicable, is The Onion had their, descri- the satirical newspaper had their description of the Supreme Court argument on this in which the justices are saying to the opponents of same-sex marriage, and why are you here? <laughs> what, what is this? It is the sense that as soon as people came to, to grips with, the th- with what they had never seen, they said, yeah, so this hurts who? Interestingly, I would point out on the other big social issue of our time, on abortion, that hasn't moved the no. same way. P- p- the country has moved toward the mushy middle, I think, because there's at least an argument to be made that there's another, another potential like Absolutely right.
2: It. No, I, I, I think you're exactly right, Jeff, and in fact, I think there is an issue which, in my mind, is analogous to same-sex marriage and LGBT rights in general, um, both morally to me and, and political impact, and that's the legalization of marijuana. Once again, it is something that some people like to do that really is nobody else's business because it does not affect them, unlike drinking, which does have a negative effect on other people. Um, And what has happened is people have talked about all these terrible things that are going to happen if people can smoke marijuana, and people have been
1: smoking it, and nothing bad has happened, and I think it's going to follow the same trajectory. that That makes great sense. In fact, the culture has shifted so greatly that as we learned from today's New York Times on the front page, top law firms are, and I will use this word, are afraid in some yes. cases to take the argument against gay marriage. Lawyers have been asked to leave firms. Is that an appropriate response or do you think at that point, uh, the, I don't know if the pendulum has gone so far, but is that, is that no. a development that you welcome?
2: No, well, I welcome... Uh, the causes. I don't welcome its manifestation. Although, but it is it is an affirmation of what of the way you phrase it. That is essentially it is now I think fairly clear to a lot of people opposition to same-sex marriage can only be rationalized on the grounds that you don't like lesbians or gay men. Um, but even that, no, I don't think people should lose their jobs because of that. Although, it is true we've always had this distinction that you have a right to a lawyer in a criminal case, not I mean. The obligation of a, of a lawyer to defend unpopular causes has always applied primarily to a criminal defendant because of the way our justice system works. It has not historically been, if you think of the example of John Adams and the uh, Boston, Boston, Boston Massacre people, or Clarence Darrow and uh, Leopold Loeb, it's always been that you had the, the obligation to, to well, provide criminal it's defense. In
1: the, in the Red Scare days, you needed, it was hard to find a lawyer to defend you if you, for instance, were denied a security clearance or lost the sure, job. True, although
2: generally, but the, that happened. With those, but those were criminal contempt cases. Oh, they were going to jail. More, you mm-hmm. know, the, okay. the, the, the but, Hollywood Ten. Right. But with all that, no, I don't. Uh, I think that uh, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm a big libertarian, and I think people have
1: a right to be uh, to be bigots without losing their job. You recount some of this. Sh- some of this. Sh- <laughs> okay, it's somewhere in the Four Freedoms. Um, well, it's like free speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get you. Look, you, you are not a true believer in free speech
2: unless you have defended the right of some despicable person to say obnoxious things. It's
1: easy to be for nice speech. You recount some of the shift in terms of your own life. I'm just curious, and you write it a little bit. When you, when you got married and you brought Jim into the world of congressional spouses, was there any, any holdouts? Did anybody look at this askance and say, what's he doing here? You, you dis-
2: no, actually, I, as I said, I... Uh, I never would have thought until well into my career that I could in fact marry a man while I was still a member of Congress and avoid controversy and uh, I, I didn't avoid controversy. I had a lot of people who were angry because we didn't invite them because it was a small room. <laughs> but um, No, um, I, but I, here I go back and I, I, you know, there's a professor at Columbia, I think his name was Charles Hamilton, who wrote an excellent book. I read two books in my life as, as manuals one was a book about Adam Clayton Powell because Adam Clayton Powell was the third African American to serve in the Congress in this century, post-Reconstruction. But the first two were from Chicago and they were docile. They were, they were machine guys, one a Republican, one a Democrat. When Adam Powell got to Congress, he was told he couldn't swim in the house swimming pool. He was told by the black maitre d' that he couldn't eat in the house restaurant and he couldn't use the house barbershop. And he said, the hell I can't. And I read very carefully. so when I first began dating a man after I came out in 1987, uh, Herb Moses, we decided very consciously, okay, we are not gonna do anything just to make a point, but we're not gonna not do anything so somebody else could make a point. So by the time uh, Jim came around, first of all, the Democratic Party at that point had become overwhelmingly faux gay, and Jim uh, was was very well accepted. But even among the Republicans, I guess the best I do tell the story in the book, um, at one point, the, uh, Jim ran into the uh, Republican leader of the committee when I was chairman, uh, Spencer Backus from Alabama. He was a Republican from Alabama. And he ran into Jim in the hallway and he said, oh, I figured you were in town. Jim said, what, what, what made you think that? He said, Barney was nice to me today.
1: <laughs> so. If there is one uh, place where this, where, um, this cultural shift is less evident, it's among the Republican candidates for president in 2016. How serious a problem is that for them, you think?
2: I think it's a very serious problem. That's why nobody in America, I mean this quite literally, is more eagerly rooting for the Supreme Court to find that same-sex marriage is a constitutional right than Karl Rove, because he wants that issue off the table. Um, And I I know this, the fact is, and this is how you're quite right, talk about the shift. In 2004, you quoted the statistics, Karl Rove on behalf of George Bush put referenda on the ballot in many states, Ohio and other states that were gonna be critical in the presidential election, because John Kerry had voted against the Defense of Marriage Act, although he was not an advocate of same-sex marriage, and uh, they figured this would turn out their voters. So in 2004, this was an issue they were eager to use by now, and I know this is a fact, the Republicans are hoping, the sensible ones, the slight majority, they are hoping that the Supreme Court takes that issue off the table without, uh, without question, because if it doesn't, it is, a, it is a problem for them.
1: Let me shift to the other side of, of, the, of these two arcs that you describe, and that is the, de- the decline of, in trust in government, particularly the movement among white working class voters to, as it is often described, vote against their economic interests. Now, I should point out, when I hear this, I say, you know, there are a group of people on the other side that vote against their economic interests. They're called Jews. Um, you know, or, or Hollywood liberals. But you're, you're, you challenge the conventional wisdom that it's gods, gays, and guns. You say, guns, maybe. Guns, definitely. Okay, but it, you don't think that, the, that the, the social issues are what has driven members of the white working less away from the cause? Race has been a factor, was a factor a while ago. I think race
2: declined. I think Bill Clinton was not hurt uh, by being uh, seen as very supportive of African Americans. I do think race is a factor now, and a little bit women and gays, but as a secondary issue. That is, first of all, as to gays, here we have this enormous increase in the political support for LGBT rights at the same time that, white guy anger at government is proceeding. I mean, they, they, they can't be connected. They're going in opposite directions. Um, secondly, uh, guns is a serious issue. But I'll tell you, it was guns that made me think about it. I was at a, again, I talk about this in the book, I was at a dinner in Washington with a handful, of, well, maybe a dozen liberal congressmen and a couple of union guys, maybe the mine workers, the steel workers, and one of the members of Congress, it was after an election where we hadn't done well, said, well, I guess we got a real problem with guns. And one of the union leaders exploded. He said, yeah, guns is a problem, but damn it, my guys care about the economy. My guys are hurting, and where are you guys, you know, where are you coming to their defense? And I I believe that, yes, there are other factors, but I think for a lot of white men, it is not that they are philosophically opposed to government, it's paradoxically to me, because they care a lot about government, they have seen their economic position erode, which it clearly has because of national, international economic trends. (laughs) and they resent the failure of the government to come to their aid. And it's at that point that some of the resentment comes in saying, well, if they weren't so worried about the blacks, if they weren't so worried about the gays, I don't think it's the gays, it's about the women, um, it, maybe it would affect us. So the thing, by the way, about gay people and white working class men is that white working class men now know that they have gay friends, relatives, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's collapsed. But I think that's the, that's the major problem, is that uh, these, there is a group of people who think that if If we wanted to help them, we would. There's an additional factor, and Democrats have to accept this. We are the party of government in people's minds. In fact, Democrats have had the House, the Senate, and the presidency for exactly four years out of the last 35. But despite that, we are held responsible. When the Republicans do bad things, we, we get held accountable. So I think the only way to break this down is to accept the fact that we are gonna be blamed if government doesn't perform and try to find ways for government to perform. Obviously, there will still be some people who will lose course of race, et cetera, but I believe there is a critical element of people who we could win back if we could respond to their legitimate economic needs.
1: Okay, so just take, take the following and, and see whether or not uh, it, it's a kind of counter argument. You go back to the early 60s, we're in the middle of the post-war boom. Virtually full employment, economic real incomes going up every year. Things seem to be working great. but you 've got in the early '60s you 've got busing you 've got this beginning the rise of crime you 've got issues about hate neighborhoods and housing, so you 've got cities like Seattle and Berkeley repealing by voters fair housing rules. you've got California knocking out its statewide fair housing law. You know better than I what happened with the busing issue in a place like Boston. George Wallace gets big chunks of the Democratic primary vote in three non-Southern states in 64. So the question I'm raising is, even before the economy began going south, it looked like there was a substantial erosion, or, or rather the, the, the liberal Democratic coalition, working class and blacks, was already beginning to fracture very badly. But I think
2: it came back and then fractured again. I, in the first place, Yes, race was clearly the beginning, but race has substantially diminished. I go back to Bill Clinton. This was, Bill Clinton was enthusiastically admired by African Americans until we had a little problem with the Obama campaign and a couple of his things he shouldn't have said. But um, what happened was busting, those things went away in American politics. They basically, you, you did not have a serious racial issue uh, during the the uh, well, really from the '80s on. I mean, it, 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 you did not have that same kind of difficulty over integration in the North that was as divisive. Uh, certainly by the '90s, I don't think that was a fundamental issue, and I don't think it's the fundamental one today. I think I, I do think people say, if they weren't so worried about these other groups, they might pay more attention to us. But I think. To great extent, uh, now the police thing is stirring it up again. It's, it's causing, again, some, some racial taking of sides, like in New York. But I, I believe, beginning in the 90s, the economic issue uh, was, has become much more of one. Because I do think racial hostility has diminished, flared up again a little bit with the police. But I believe the economic issue is, is simply more
1: important. And I, I, the other things, I think, have had no real effect at all. I would, what I would argue is it morphed so that by the 80s, it wasn't race per se, but it was Willie Horton and crime, Uh, and it was welfare, and Clinton dealt with both of these things. Some people feel in a rather draconian way, Mm -hmm. but he he wanted to make it absolute. Right, and then it
2: came back again strong. I agree with that. One, I think crime is diminished. Crime is diminished as an issue, because crime is diminished as a fact in people's lives. And so, yes, it has morphed, but morphing means it is something else, and you need something else to keep it alive. So I agree, that was, the, the economic issue was not the fundamental one, but I believe it has now, uh, what's fueling it today is much less, I think, it's not crime very much. Uh, I think race is diminished in terms of the number of conflicts, and uh, I think the economic issue is the, uh, is the major one, and, and there's a reality there
1: that... Uh, that uh, and that's where I want to go. The reality being, among other things, that the, that the average net worth, the net worth of the average American is lower now than it was at the start of the millennium, that all of the gains of the, of the recovery, have, or 90% of them have gone to the Rich. famous 1%. So the question that, that haunts some people, and Tyler Cowen has made this argument in a book called The Great Stagnation is, maybe 1945 to the 1970s was an exception. No question. And if that's the case, then what, are are there realistic things that a, I don't know whether you use the term progressive, liberal, whatever you like to call yourself, can say to this group to say, we know how to make this better, even though the fundamental structure of the world economy has made you less valuable.
2: I make that argument in the book. I agree with that absolutely. Uh, The fact that it was world economic, I mean, I, I believe that yes, it is these economic trends. And yeah, I make this argument too. From 1945 to 19, the late 70s, remember, that what made it exceptional was that every economy in the world had been devastated by World War II, every developed economy. Ours was strengthened by World okay. War II. So for that unusual period, Americans could make anything and sell everything anywhere. And then that eroded. And I think that is the root of it, that yes, there is this look back, people look back to their parents' generation, white working class people, and say, uh, why not us? Two things I would say. First of all, while it was primarily economic trends and not public policy that caused this, conservative public policy has enhanced it. For example, uh, the long and successful assault on labor unions, beginning with Ronald Reagan and Patco, which is a weakening of one of the major strengths uh, of, 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 of working people. So then the question is, what can we do about it? And I say this. Suppose we could reduce the Medicare age to 55 greatly reducing the economic insecurity people feel. We almost were able to do that until Joe Liebman took a walk on us in, in, the, uh, in 2009. Suppose you could say that any kid who wanted to go to a first-rate public university could go for $1,000 a year or less. Suppose we put every construction worker in America to work building the things that we need, et cetera. If we could do those things, you would begin to make some real dents in inequality, both in the short term, by hiring people in the longer term with education. The frustration, of course, is that you don't have the resources to do that, and you won't have the resources to do that as long as people hate government. So I, there are two things that I believe are important to do both in themselves and because they give us the resources to diminish inequality. And again, I accept the fact, I say it in the book, it was not public policy that primarily caused this problem. Public policy's exacerbated, and I'll give you one example in a, in a, in a minute or two. But public policy can diminish its negative effects. And this is what people are looking for. How come the government isn't there to help me the way it used to be in the 30s, 40s, on into the 50s? So there are two things we can do to free up revenue from the existing system and make that available for things that would be very popular. First of all, a substantial reduction of at least 20% a year in America's worldwide excessive military engagement. We are everywhere for no good reason. I will give you just one quick example. 2012, after Obama was reelected, two Air Force guys, one an official in the Bush administration, another uh, former Air Force uh, official, said we're very worried, because there are people who don't understand now that we have to expand the Air Force. It is true, they say, that no American has been killed by hostile air power since 1953. And it is also true that America has dominated airspace over every battle since then. And for this reason, some people don't understand why it's important for us to expand the Air Force. And, uh, of course, we do have the largest Air Force in the world, by far. The second largest Air Force in the world, well, somebody else is catching up, but the second largest Air Force in the world is still the U.S. Navy. And on the assumption that they will not go to war with each other, you could probably, you know, reduce one or the other. But they said, we have to be able to respond to any trouble spot, anywhere, any anytime, place. So no more Iraqs, but even beyond that, shrink our worldwide engagement everywhere every place some in many of which we can't do any good secondly and that would save well over 100 billion dollars a year when the soviet union collapsed george hw bush and bill clinton began consecutively substantially reducing the military budget because there was no more existential threat to america the way the communists were or the nazis were and then dick cheney's great triumph was to build the terrorists after 9 11 into the equivalent as a threat to these others. They're terrible people. I cheer when a terrorist is killed. But they are not the Soviet Union with thermonuclear weapons. They're not Hitler and, and, and Japan, and, and so what we need to do is to scale back to where we had been before 9-11. Secondly, we could save a lot of money at the state and local level, and some at the federal level, by ending another war, the war on drugs, which has done much more harm than good. We should say that the rule is this we will not put you in prison for ingesting a drug that we don't think you should ingest unless it's gonna make you likelier to injure other people. Uh, and with that, you, you have in every state these days the expanding prison population as a, uh, as a major problem. It is also the case that race has come back again in the news, and I think that while we have legally abolished disabilities based on race obviously in fact it's there's still racism and I think that that where racism most bites in America today is in law enforcement on trivial matters
1: that shouldn't be crimes in the first place. So (laughs) uh, let's assume that the arithmetic works that somehow the combined savings you could do with this, and let's say you had the political will to do it, which is a whole other issue, right? It, it would, would provide some of what you're talking about. I think lowering the Medicaid age, Medicare age to 55 is gonna cost a hell of a lot more than 100 billion a year, but.
2: No, no, well, Medicare is, uh, that, it, it would not increase Medicare by uh, 25%. Medicare is in the hundreds of billions.
1: Yeah, well, okay. I'm, as I said, I was a liberal arts major, but. <laughs> But the fundamental question, Barney, is: It seems to me when you look at the, there's a there's a real cognitive dissidence in polling that is, people say the, the deck is stacked, inequality is a major issue. But when you but when you ask them if they think the government knows what to do about it, at least right now, the answer is overwhelmingly no. The, oh, I agree with that. That's my premise. So then, where does the where's the political? Assuming you had the political power, I mean, political support to slash the military budget when you know, we're being told that ISIS is coming across the Mexican border with Ebola. And the nobody Bola. believes
2: it anymore. That's, that's decreasingly persuasive. That's my point, by the way, exactly. Okay. You cannot talk people into it. And here's the problem we have. There is a, uh, we have a disconnect. And some liberals promoted this. People hate government in general. They like a lot of what government does. I mean, the favorite form of medical care in this country, according to its uh, uh, consumers, is in fact socialized medicine. It's the medical care you get at the Department of Veterans Affairs. So what I believe, if we had the money, I think there would be support for increasing Medicare. Uh, people didn't like the President's healthcare bill were saying, keep my Medicare. By the way, Medicare, younger people don't cost as much per capita. I think you could work out the numbers. Or maybe you get it to 60 at first. It's a significant increase for people in reducing economic insecurity. Uh, if you, I think, a construction program for roads and bridges would be very popular if we put that money into it. I think lowering tuition at every public uh, university, if we provide them money, all those things would be popular, so I, I, do, I agree. It's not, give us the money to expand government. It is, we have the money. We're gonna make education cheaper for your kids. We're gonna put construction workers to work and improve the transportation network. We're gonna reduce the cost of Medicare. We're gonna provide more money so there are cops and firefighters and others locally. Uh, so that, I, I have no question that that would be popular if we had the money. And it's not, we're not telling people we like government. I think that after they do that, you say, by the way, that was government that, that just did this for you. But the other issue is I am more optimistic. I think there was a left-right coalition. For one thing, I think there was cultural lag, and I think President Obama is suffering from it, and it's the one thing that worries me with Hillary Clinton. The American people are ready to withdraw substantially from this worldwide engagement. Yeah, they want to protect ourselves, but this notion that we have to be everywhere and defend everybody and that we can send the military. I, I think the president was right to pull out of Iraq. He'd be right to pull out of Afghanistan. Um, I'll give you the, why I'm sure of this. The president asked for authority to go after the Islamic State. He said he wanted to bomb them and not have any substantial ground troops. The Republicans don't like that. They think it is too little. So how are they gonna respond? Now he sent them their, their legislation the normal thing for them to do, now that they control both houses, would be to amend the bill and take out the restrictions they don't like. Instead, they're not gonna take any action because they know that's unpopular. Their members do not want to vote to send American ground troops back in there. And I think, by the way, uh, uh, there is an alliance here with the Tea Party. Uh, Some of the Tea Party are consistent. John McCain is not. John McCain will tell you, I mean, the way he's voting these days, the federal government can't do anything to improve the quality of life in America But if we send troops in, we can make Iraq, a dysfunctional society, into a wonderful place. That we have this, the military can do what we can't do at home. Secondly, I think, this is one area where the uh, public is ahead of the government on uh, marijuana at the very least. So I think that a presidential candidate who said, I wanna still be America, the strongest nation in the world, will still spend hundreds of billions, I wanna bring 100 billion home. I don't see why we still have to have troops in Western Europe seven years after the end of World War II. Let them have their own troops if they want to. And um, I believe you said, and I'm gonna do that to lower college tuitions at the public universities, reduce the age of Medicare, put people to work in the construction trades. That would be very popular. And I, I think as time goes on, that's gonna, that pat- platform will work.
1: Okay, this is, this is a Monday morning quarterbacking, but this seems like a, a program that is in keeping with the, Broadest kind of progressive notion that the Democratic Party has always been about. In the 2014 midterms, I did not hear from anybody one word of this.
2: I agree. I was disappointed. I was. I see. That's because I didn't run since 2010. Um, but um, I understand that. I think there was a cultural lag on the part of many Democrats who do not understand that. Because in that same election period. States were voting to legalize marijuana in 2012. That's legalizing marijuana. But, oh, but that's part of it, because I think it goes beyond that. That's, and that saves a lot of money, by the way, and converts wasted money into uh, a positive. As to the military issue, um, I agree. I think the Democrats are missing the boat on this. And uh, I think that, a, a, that, that that is a program. And I wish the president, and it's one of my disappointments with the president, whom I greatly admire on most things, you know, you become the president, and they come and tell you you're the leader of the free world, and you, he, I think he's gotten a little intimidated. I think he was right to pull out of Iraq and Afghanistan, and it was popular. Now, the, the Islamic State came along, that was the glitch, and they were so awful that, that people reacted. But he, by now, I think there's a sober second thought that people, these are terrible people, that they're, they're not the kind of threat that they were. The bombing of them works. And uh, I, I agree, that's why I wrote the book, to urge Democrats to do this, to be much more explicit about cutting back on military spending, and there are allies on the right to do it. So no, I don't, I'm not arguing that this is what's now happening. I wouldn't write a book about what's now happening. I wrote a book to try and make it happen.
1: Speaking of the book, there are, there's, there are, I'm not gonna give away every nugget so that people will be desperate to buy it, but there are a couple of things that are that are worth noting because they were at least to me who followed your career somewhat of a surprise would you please explain how pope john paul ii was a key uh, to your political life
2: absolutely it goes to what you said about accident you know there's this image of the hyper determined person who's gonna plans out his career and there's an element of accident in almost every important political career um you know barack obama wouldn't have won his senate primary if the guy he was running against, hadn't kicked his wife and the divorce papers were made public. Um, but uh, in 19, late 70s, I, was, I decided I couldn't still be repressed. When I had I, I a chance to run for the state legislature in 1972 and I made two decisions. One, I would be a coward. I would not be honest about being gay. But two, I would never be a hypocrite. I would become a leading gay rights advocate because I despise gay people who then punish other gay people. Uh, and, and I was in the legislature, and I thought, well, I'll have a career, that'll, that'll solve my problem of having no personal life, but it didn't. Um, in fact, the better my career became, the more the contrast was eating me up. So I decided in the late 70s, okay, I'm gonna run for one more term in the legislature. I'd gone to law school, I'm gonna retire. I'll have been, for 10 years, a member of the legislature. I'll come out, so I will be, at that point, 1981 or 82, I'll have had more political experience than just about any other openly gay person, and I'll be a gay rights advocate, and I was ready to go. I had thought it would be, I could probably get elected to Congress, nothing more, in, a, in, a, in one of a couple of districts, but the district that I lived in, which would have been the best one, was represented by Tip O'Neill. I, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't want to run against him, I it would have been ridiculous, so I didn't. And uh, I was really getting ready to retire, and I got a phone call from the wife of a friend of mine, another state representative, who told me that uh, Father Robert Dranin, the Jesuit priest who represented the district next to mine, was not gonna be able to run again because Pope John Paul II, who had just become the Pope, had ordered him not to run because conservative Catholics had said, you got a liberal guy with a collar in there and it's hurting us. So he ordered Dranin not to run again, which created the vacancy, which I was able to fill. And Father Dranin later said that he had two serious regrets about that situation, one, of course, was that he had to give up his congressional seat, and two, that he never got a chance to say to the Pope, that business about my congressional seat, did that work out the way you figured it would?
1: Would have been an interesting conversation. As I said, throughout the book, there there is maybe not to Frank Bruni's satisfaction, but certainly to mine, there are some really candid um, observations about your own approach to politics. One of which, which just struck me because I've never heard a politician acknowledge this is that you said, you know, I, you develop a taste for vengeance sometimes in politics and that you had a, in your drawer, a list of, I guess, state reps in Massachusetts who had done you bad things. And that even a few years later, you would take a certain amount of satisfaction into doing something to them yes. that did not help them.
2: For two reasons. Yeah, it was a. Uh, I had uh, got elected in 1980 with the, the Pope running interference and open up the, the hall. Uh, but then in 82, Matthews lost the seat, and I was put in a very unfavorable contest against, at that point, the senior Republican woman in the House, Margaret Heckler, because I had by that time alienated the president of the Senate, uh, Billy Bulger. Um, and the Republican governor, the Democratic governor, Ed King, I supported the Republican against him, he was very conservative. The speaker never liked me, thought I was a smart ass, so uh, the speaker of the house. So I, I was in this tough situation. Some friends of mine in the state house offered an amendment to the redistricting bill that would have helped me, and it lost because the democratic leadership cracked down on them. And yes, I kept that in my drawer, and uh, when something came up involving a state representative, I would check it out, to be honest with you, it, it wasn't. For, I didn't need to check it for a couple of years
1: because I remembered it, um, and Isn't I did this, that. This what you call Irish Alzheimer's? Yeah,
2: you know, uh, you know, Irish Alzheimer's uh, mentioned in the book. Irish Alzheimer's. My Irish friends explained to me is when you forget everything but your grudges, <laughs> and that's a common expression in Massachusetts. But um, in this case, you do it for two reasons. First of all, you do it because you're mad, and, and I, you know, look, I was by that time I was still repressing my sexual orientation. I sure as hell wasn't gonna repress anything else. I mean, I, uh, but secondly, look, politics, um, being someone who uh, takes action against people who oppose him enhances your influence. Being seen as someone who uh, you don't wanna cross because he may make your life unpleasant. And I'll give, I, I tell you where this first occurred to me. In Advising Consent, a book which had a lot of impact on me, because in Advising Consent there's a brilliant young senator, this is in 1960 and when I read it, I'm 20 years old, there's a brilliant young senator who is threatened with exposure because of a homosexual affair he once had, and so he then does the only thing that made sense in 1960, he shoots himself. Um, that was in Advising Consent. But the, one of the main characters there, Senator Seabright P. Cooley, Charles Lawton in the movie, was this domineering South Carolinian, and the author, Alan Drury, writes in the book, there was a rumor in Washington that he had once pulled a knife on another senator in a dispute. It was not true, but Cooley had no interest in refuting it. <laughs> Having people think so, yeah, being seen as someone who was a, was a good friend and a bad enemy is part of enhancing your influence.
1: Also in your book is a, several points along the book, in one case, in so many words, is a ringing defense of incrementalism, which for some people you know, who are p- passionate about politics is like a mortal sin. And you made the argument about civil rights, about gay rights, that in fact sometimes small steps ultimately are the way to get to a big victory. Right.
2: You wanna get as much as you can, but there was this mistaken in view in the first place, in the nature of society, a big complex society like ours, if a phenomena exists and has existed for a long time, it's not easily blown away. It's taken root, it's, it's there because people support it. So I think people talk about, oh, we're gonna reform the tax code, and why can't we get rid of these loopholes? Well, none of those loopholes floated down from heaven like mana, they were put in there by powerful forces and they're defended by powerful forces. That doesn't mean you don't try, but you take that into account. And uh, in fact, one of the problems I have with my LGBT allies and friends, is that they misread African American history. People do not remember that the first cases that were brought by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Inc Fund as it was called, with Thurgood Marshall uh, about to take over, challenging separate but equal, did not ask the Supreme Court to overturn separate but equal. They were in the late 40s. Instead they said, yeah, they say separate but equal, but those things aren't equal. So you gotta let us in, there were two law schools, one at the University of Oklahoma, one at the University of Texas. They were public, so they were covered by this. And that was what they, the, the, the black strategy was, okay, they say separate but equal. What we're gonna show is that there's no such thing as separate but equal. So they didn't start out by saying separate but equal was wrong. They said we're gonna prove it's, it's, un, it's unattainable, and then we will go after it. And uh, that's been my strategy at, at all times, that you look at the situation, and, and the notion that if you don't get it all you walk away is is uh, absolutely a, a recipe for an action, and so then the question is: Okay, in any given situation, what should you do? Now, sometimes it won't be enough. But I, you know, I, I stand here, and I, some people here will know, others will not. Uh, my mantra came from a great 20th century philosopher named Henny Youngman, <laughs> and you know, he was the comedian who made all these wife jokes and mother-in-law jokes, but he had one two-liner that was really quite profound. How's your wife? Compared to what? (laughs) That was my question that I applied every time I had to make a decision. Will the causes I care about be better off if I do it this way than if I do it that way? Uh, So uh, incrementalism is a recognition of the fact that, and I guess I would just sum it up with this, the more important the issue you are working on, the bigger the social change you were trying to achieve the harder it's gonna be to get it all done at once because it, it,
1: by definition, has a a big lump before So if younger people now look back and they say, how the hell could Bill Clinton have signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which in effect said, okay, if if one state legalizes gay marriage, you don't have to. From the perspective of 2015, this looks... um, Even
2: worse, by the way, what it said was, and if your state does recognize same-sex marriage, the federal government won't let you have tax benefits or social security or immigration um yeah i've led the fight against the defensive marriage act on the floor by the way it goes back to one of the things you said about what's your problem how's this hurting you one of the things i said on the floor was you say you call the defense well the very fact that they call it the defense of marriage what they honestly should have called it is we don't like them so they shouldn't get married act but they had to say that they were protecting society against us and uh they call it the defense of marriage so i said on the floor You say you're defending marriage against what? Well, someone explain to you whose marriage is threatened. I love a man. How does that threaten your marriage? And so I said, I'll yield. Silence in the house. Uh, Very effective. Well, one guy got up, Steve Rogers, broke over. He said, well, it is true. Uh, You're having, uh, loving another man. It does not affect my marriage. It does not affect the marriage of anybody in the chamber, but it affects the institution of marriage. My response was, well, that's the kind of argument I would expect to hear in an institution. Um, (laughs) But the point was this, having defended it, I expected Clinton to sign it because the Republicans did it right before the presidential election. Clinton had done, he had abolished the discrimination in in, in security clearance, he had uh, uh, allowed gay people being persecuted overseas to be refugees, he'd appointed openly gay people, and by the way, the other argument I make when people ask me that, Well, in 1996, I had to go out and help a guy run for re-election and persuade gay people to vote for him because he also voted for the Defense of Marriage Act. Paul Wellstone, probably you know a good icon. Well, see, there were two issues, and you, you mentioned one of them. The Republicans, very cleverly controlling the Congress, both houses that year, put two issues on the, there in '96: The Welfare Bill, although Clinton went along with that, and the Defense of Marriage Act. They were both very popular. A lot of us in the House could vote against both of them, but very few senators outside, I think, actually, uh, New York and uh, the California senators may have, but John Kerry voted against the Defense of Marriage Act before the welfare bill. Wellstone voted against the welfare bill before the Defense of Marriage Act.
1: But you, My point about this is, this is these are cases where you give allies a pass, or at least you do not say that's it. No, I give a
2: pass. Okay. they with us and everything else. Right. But here's the deal. I, I, I had a strategy in mind for the Defense of Marriage Act, and one of the things... I argued with some of the, there was a thought that Hawaii was gonna find for same-sex marriage, and some of the advocates said, oh good, then we'll have marriage everywhere. My answer was no, don't say that. We will lose if every member of Congress thinks marriage is coming to his state, same-sex marriage. We can win if we get a beachhead. We can win if we win it in one or two states, and then we can show that it has no negative effect, and that's ultimately the way it played out. So what I did, now I did not give people a pass, in 2004, after Massachusetts had same-sex marriage thanks to our Supreme Judicial Court, and George Bush sent up a constitutional amendment to Congress to overrule that, and to say federal constitution, no same-sex marriage, I didn't give anybody a pass on that. In fact, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, both voted against that, and I would have been very angry
1: if they hadn't. Uh, one last thing, we've got some good questions here, but um, there's one other area that I uh, uh, just want to get a, a kind of concise answer. You've talked about the money. You talked about Citizens United, the su- a Supreme Court that is apparently convinced that money is speech. We just read yesterday that thanks to essentially one billionaire creating a string of super PACs, Ted Cruz has raised $31 million. And yet in the book, you you caution your allies, do not assume that because money is flowing like this that the causes are lost. You d- You do not think that money... As Bob Dylan says, money doesn't talk, it swears. You don't necessarily think it's everything.
2: Right. It's, it's much more influential than it should be, but it's clearly not everything. And they say two things. The argument that money is everything and nothing else counts is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we have two forms of voter suppression in this country. We have the vicious legal voter suppression from the right, which imposes restrictions on people aimed at black people that they can't meet. And one of my colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus said when one of those states required something. My mother doesn't have a birth certificate. Black women didn't get, or black babies didn't get birth certificates in Mississippi in 1922. So that's awful. And the Supreme Court, unfortunately, five before, allowed that by gutting the Voting Rights Act. But there's voter suppression from the left. That's the argument that they're all bums, nothing good ever happens, they only listen to money, they don't care what you think. Rational people listening to that will say, well, why bother, especially, uh, I think that contributes to the, low turnout in the off-year election in fact when money gets a clear field it dominates but if the voters get activated they can win and i'll give you i think a couple of examples people will accept elizabeth warren great advocate for the independent consumer financial protection bureau hated by all the financial institutions unusually because of the financial crisis we had public opinion engaged So the committee I chaired, we were able to get the votes to create a very strong independent Financial Protection Bureau. And the day that was passed out of committee, Elizabeth Warren was there and the press asked her after the meeting, what do you think? And she said, well, they told me not even to try this because the banks always win, but they didn't win today. They didn't win win that day because the public got engaged. And the other example, net neutrality. All the money in the country was against net neutrality. On the other hand, you had a lot of people with computers who, in my judgment, want to be able to listen to other people's work for free, but that's my substantive take. Believe
1: Um, me, I write books.
2: I understand this. But the answer was all the big money, all the Hollywood people, the music producers, all the money was lobbying strongly for a bill to block net neutrality. And then it got out on the Internet. And by the time the public spoke, you couldn't literally find anybody who had ever been against net neutrality. Oh, yeah, no, we had a technical issue. We weren't really against
1: it. So that was an example where... Uh, John Oliver, uh, uh, who on his HBO show, created a, a lot of that firestorm. Yeah. Well, but probably he, but what then uh, I
2: hope he would take that into account. And I don't know what he says, but, but the argument that money always wins... No, money, money is more influential than it should be in a democracy, and it will certainly fill a vacuum. But if you can engage the public, as we did in financial reform as they did on net neutrality, as they do on a couple of other things. Uh, by the way, I'll give another one where I wish maybe, from my standpoint, I wish money had a little more impact. But immigration, the big money in this country is on the side of sensible immigration. The business people want immigration. They want customers, they want workers. Public public sentiment in the Republican Party is so
1: strong that it beats money in this one. I wish it didn't in this case. Okay, we've got a good, some good questions here. A couple from our far flung, uh, do we call them viewers? I guess out in the great, over country but we're gonna get as many of them as possible but this one is off the subject it's a, it, it's answered very quickly off the subject but how can Ted Cruz run for president when he was born in Canada very simple the, because the
2: question is what you get your citizenship from your mother and if you are the son of an American mother or daughter uh, you are a citizen like constitutional is, you know uh, that you can't be naturalized Ted Cruz was an American citizen the day he was born because his mother was... Uh,
1: also father, it's not like a Jewish patrimony. No, Grunster it's just either mother. Parent. I think it's either parent.
2: It may have been changed, but it, it, in, in this case, well, I take it back,
1: in immigration, we had to change it, but... Uh, in Israel, it has to be the mother. Yeah, no, I okay. take
2: it back. It, it, we did have, it, we changed the immigration law. Okay. So, um, th-
1: now, this that makes one, it, uh, This one, I am gonna read the question and I'll explain to you why Barney will answer it in a different form. Because it was gonna come up and we decided let me explain. To this day, the Republicans blame you for the giving of mortgages to people who were not qualified, which led to the financial crisis. Now, if we were here till three o'clock in the morning, we would answer it. But there are there is a chapter plus two appendices in Barney's book that deal with this at great length. And if you would like the full answer from Barney's point of you, view, you're going to read the whole. Is this going to no. be like Andy Kaufman reading yeah, the Great one, Here I come to say the. Same day. I would just
2: um, quick summary the republicans and the conservatives were all for loans to poor people to buy houses up through 2008 and in fact on several occasions liberals tried to regulate them and stop them and we were blocked because the conservatives were in power and they said this was interference with free enterprise once the crash came the right wing needed an alternative explanation for the crash They did not want us to blame deregulation because they wanted to stave off regulation. So they said we were too nice to poor people. And I'll just read the one in the appendix. This is the editorial from the Wall Street Journal, November 6, 2007. I had become chairman in January of 2007. So this is my first year of my chairmanship. We finally had the votes to pass the bill I'd been for for several years to block, well, it was called the Mortgage Reform and Anti-Predatory Lending Act. And uh, what it says is, in the name of, um, for all the demonizing, about 80% of even subprime loans are being repaid on time. Not a great number. Um, oh, so to the extent the Frank bill adds a new risk element to subprime loans, the main losers will be subprime borrowers who will pay higher rates if they get a loan at all. Most of these new homeowners are low-income families, often minorities, who would otherwise not have qualified for a mortgage. In the name of consumer protection, Mr. Frank's legislation will ensure that far fewer of these loans are issued in the future. They forgot that they said that. Okay. <laughs> if, it is an, it is of, if it is of interest to you that it is... Uh, one, one last sentence. Okay. The other one was, the Republicans were in power from 1995 to 2007. In Dick Cheney's book, i got to quote Dick Cheney's memoir, he says, in 2003, we asked Congress to reform Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac but Financial Services Committee Chairman Barney Frank blocked us. I was not chairman of the Financial Services Committee in 2003 or four or five or six. I didn't become chairman of the committee until 2007, at which point I did pass the bill, as Bush's Secretary of the Treasury said, and the only reason I like to say this is that having Dick Cheney lying <laughs> about what I was doing in 2003 gave me, I thought, a very rare distinction. It put me in the same category as Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. <laughs>
1: So this is a, a, a question that is shortened to the point, but it actually makes a point. Why isn't Jamie Dimon in jail? <laughs> Jamie Dimon, being the CEO of uh... J.P. Morgan Chase. Thank you.
2: First of all, liberals should be clear about the importance of an element of due process, and one element of due process is you should not be criminally prosecuted unless it was very clear that the action you took was illegal. A large part of our problem in the period leading until we passed the bill was that things that were wrong were not illegal. There, there were no rules. They should have been. That's a major part of it. Secondly, within these big companies, they were able to do it so that there was a great deal of insulation, so that the people at the top were never, there were no fingerprints on these specific issues. Um, Having said that, I, I, I was disappointed that there were no criminal prosecutions and uh, particularly in cases where they found the financial institution guilty as an institution. I mean, I know the Supreme Court said corporations are people but they're not in, they, you need people with them. And I don't understand how a bank could have committed a crime and no people did. Um, <laughs> but we never had prosecution in our jurisdiction. But part of it was it was it was hard to make some of those stick because there, there were, believe it or not, no laws against some of the things they did.
1: As Michael Kinsley has famously said, the scandal isn't what's illegal, it's what's it's legal. It's what's legal. It's a great and line. And much of it is now illegal. Here's a question from Congregation Beth Young. People are having a very hard time qualifying for mortgages. How do you feel Dodd-Frank has affected the housing industry? In hindsight, was it too restrictive?
2: No, I believe it wasn't restrictive enough. Part of it, some of the banks may be overreacting, but uh, um, I I uh, I was upset because the one thing that they've done in the implementation, which was actually a coalition of liberals and bankers, was to uh, not implement a proposal for what we called risk retention. The fundamental issue that caused the crisis was that the lending model in America changed. 50 years ago, people in this room got a mortgage and they borrowed money from a bank and they repaid that bank, and the bank was therefore very careful about who they lent it to. And then by the 80s, they developed this model where the banks made loans, then packaged all the loans into securities, thus securitization, and they no longer cared whether you paid it back or not. So one of the things we said in the bill was, we want the people who sell these securities to be liable for some of the risk. Uh, That got wiped out in the implementation, and I regret that. No, I, I, uh, in fact, the regulators, tell me they did that because they thought it was too tough to get mortgages. But uh, I I believe that we did the appropriate thing, and I hear these arguments, but I do not see uh, the statistics that bear them out.
1: What is the best advice you can give a young gay person who wants to run for political office?
2: Well, first of all, make sure you live in a place where that's possible. I mean, America has gotten better, but it's not uniformly better. I, I, I would not go to Mississippi or uh, Georgia or uh, uh, Wyoming or whatever. Um, Secondly, and I give this advice to anybody who wants to run for office, find something else you like to do. Because, (laughs) well, uh, uh, being an elected official has in common with entertainment and uh, with entertainment in particular, to some extent professional sports, but more entertainment, there are more people who are capable of doing it than there are places for it. You know, you read about, oh, lucky break uh, because the understudy got in. So plan to have something else you do because the odds, there are very few spaces. Uh, Third, if you're interested, um, and and you're in a place where people are accepting of LGBT people, then get involved. Uh, Fourth, I wish it weren't the case, and maybe 20 years it won't be, but be a Democrat because the Democratic Party has been wholly supportive of openly LGBT people. And in the Republican Party, they are not. Republicans have evolved to the point where they accept the fact that you can't help being gay. You didn't choose it. But they get upset if you seem happy about it. (laughs) So there are very few successful examples of openly gay Republicans. If you're gay and you're, you're kind of embarrassed about it and don't talk about it, that's okay. So you become a Democrat. And then finally, the best way to get involved if you want to run for office, Go volunteer in a campaign, not for president, probably not for governor, or U.S. senator, but get involved in a campaign on behalf of a candidate whom you admire for kind of a mid-level office so that you're being a volunteer in that campaign, you'll get to meet other people who who, uh, do the right thing.
1: I should just um, mention that when Tammy Baldwin was running for senator from Wisconsin, uh, I think the first out lesbian in, in the Congress. In the Senate, yeah, she, in the House. She, she ran in
2: the House first. In right,
1: that's right. She, um, she made the point that it was time to end the vicious stereotyping and marginalization of blondes. Yeah, you know, she said, <laughs>
2: uh, what she did was she got out before her press thing. She said, I do want to confess, yes, I'm a victim of a stereotype, and I want to acknowledge it is a
1: choice. I dye my hair. Could you see returning to office or serving in the cabinet if asked?:
2: No, uh, I'm, I'm tired. I mean, I'm, first place, I'm 75. Uh, I, I don't think. I've seen too many very able people serving beyond the expiration date. And the trouble <laughs> is, you know when generally what happens is by that time you' are too, you don't realize it yourself. Uh, and uh, you know, it's a personal thing. Look. I, I, which repressed, and then I was out, and but I was in politics, and I have a, uh, you know, I, I, I fell in love with a guy, and we're married, and very happy, and I, uh, I I want to put that first.
1: This this may be the same answer to the next question. Did did you get the Ph.D. you were going to pursue on retirement? You started-
2: no, no, I haven't. I'm, somebody suggested I might you know might write another book because I got as I say in the book. I got an an indefinite extension. I was supposed to have my PhD (laughs) finished in five years for my oral exams, uh, and then Kevin White asked me to go to work for him as mayor, and I said, I can't, I gotta write my thesis. So he he asked his neighbor, Professor Samuel Huntington of the Harvard Government Department, the chairman, to give me an extension, so he gave me an extension. So I theoretically, um, I took my generals in 1964, but I guess it's still good, but (laughs) um, at this point, I, I I don't think I, I want to go back and try and pass a statistics course, which is the one thing I've left.
1: Thoughts on uh, Republican strategy on immigration? You had re- mentioned that. How can they change? I mean, th- I'm fascinated by the right after 2012. We heard a great number of Republicans say, "We got to get on, you know we've got to move on this issue," and yet it now seems that many of the candidates like Scott Walker have evolved, to use that lovely the word, way. the other way. I mean, are they in a trap here? Yeah,
2: they are. Um, part of it is, and there was, part of the problem for these issues is how well the Republicans did in 2014. I mean, there was this argument, the, the, the mainstream conservatives were saying to the more right-wing Republicans and Tea Party guys, you're gonna cost us votes, you shut down the government, you're scaring people with immigration, And then the Republicans win this big win in 2014, so they say, as Republicans don't usually do, no. I mean, you're telling me all these (laughs) terrible things are gonna happen, and and look what happened. We're in good shape. Um, The other thing is that uh, the Republican uh, primary voters, and this is the key, the, the most conservative, important political entity in American history today exists the Republican primary voters, and it's self-determined, but the people who vote in Republican primaries and dominate Republican primaries uh, are unyielding on this issue, and that's why uh, it's a big problem for Jeb Bush and the others are all, uh, are, are all moving. And I, uh, you know, this. The, 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 the explanation for all that is a popular song, which I will recite, but not sing, because I sing terrible. It's all about debase, debase, no moderates. <laughs> That's the Republican
1: theme song. It's all about the base. Right. With well, perhaps a different meaning than the original. Different um, spelling. From Sidonia, Arizona. This is like an old radio broadcast. From Mary Fisher, in fact. As a recent retiree, I'm concerned about continuing threats to Social Security and Medicare, an entitlement I paid for over 45 years. Is it true that Congress has been borrowing money from the general fund for 50 years? What are your thoughts on protecting seniors? Well,
2: There's a little bit of a confusion there. The argument that people make is not that Congress has been borrowing money from the general fund, but that it's been borrowing money set aside for Social Security, which is not yet true, but here's the deal. Social Security has a separate source of revenue, and at some point in the next 20 years, that will not be enough for the benefits, so it'll be the other way around. It may take some general revenues to be put into Social Security. The first thing I would say is that uh, uh, there is a threat to Medicare. Uh, if the Republicans win the presidency, the House, and the Senate, uh, they there is some effort to deal with Medicare. The Republican House budget, run by Paul Ryan, who's not one of the Tea Party guys, but a very conservative guy fiscally, does propose no more Medicare, not for people who are already on it, but for people who are now under 55, that, the, that they won't get full Medicare, they'll get a... Uh, Money that they can go to an insurance company with, and it won't buy the same thing. On Social Security, no, the, no the, that's not going to be touched. Okay. Uh, I mean, and just think about it what Congress is going to vote to let Social Security go into trouble? But there is a Republican, there is a possibility if the Republicans win the presidency of the House and the Senate that they will, they will try to alter Medicare. I think in the end it will be unsuccessful because it's such a popular program. As you know, it was not a joke, people in 2009 saying, we're against Obamacare because we don't want government interfering with Medicare. Um, but I, even then, if you're already retired, it's not a problem. But for the future, there is a potential threat to Medicare that I think will not succeed.
1: All right. We're uh, just a, a brief lightning round, as they say, to end this. Best president in the years you served in Congress, who's the best president?
2: Oh, um, Clinton and Obama both, uh, they're pretty much tied in my mind, both doing it as Worse? good as they can. Worst? Oh, um, uh, George W. Bush, because the war in Iraq was the biggest single bad thing any American president ever deliberately did.
1: Of the Republican presidential contenders, are there any that you admire in terms of public policy, any, or even part of their public policy? A little bit. John Kasich from Ohio, who's now
2: thinking about it. John, why serve in the House? has shown some compassion implementing the, uh, the, uh, the Medicare part of uh, healthcare, he's the only one. Uh, he, he has uh, talked about helping poor people and he has been a, a, a you know, still obviously much more conservative than I would like, but a, but a nice exception to the meanness of, of all the rest of them.
1: Of the, of the folks in the, in the, around now in the legislative branch of the government, uh, any that you would point to as particularly, you know, they're my kind of people,
2: I think Nancy Pelosi has been one of the great leaders in, in American history. She is a uh, a tough, strategic leader, and I uh, I admire her uh, greatly uh, and and work very closely with her. And then also Steny Hoyer was a majority leader with a minority whip. Now a, a, a very good team. I think we would have been well served by that.
1: Uh, and of the Republicans in the House, are there any that you say? Yeah, I I know it's tough, but you
2: know, the better ones have been driven out uh, by, by this. I mean, literally, there were people I would work with on the committee when I chaired it. And, and the, the uh, you know, I, the, 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 there are some Republicans who I think, would, would, I know, would like to do better, but this fear of the primary. I mean, I, what people would say to me when I was still in office, well, it's, how come you guys can't cooperate? And my argument is we were, we were cooperating with George Bush in 2008. And then the Republicans came in and never gave Barack Obama the kind of cooperation that we offered to Bush when it was appropriate. And I said, you know, this is not, this is one-sided. It's not, we, finally I would say an exasperation, how easy do you think it is to work out a deal with Michelle Bachman on a serious issue? <laughs> so the answer would be, are you saying they're all Michelle Bachman? And my answer has been, unfortunately, no. Only half of them are Michelle Bachman. But the other half are afraid of losing a primary to Michelle Bachman. And so, unfortunately, at this point, there are no Republicans left who seem to me to be willing to stand up.
1: And last, of all the people over a long and distinguished career in the Congress, is there anyone that you hold in the most minimal high regard?
2: (laughs) A great phrase from uh, John McCormick, because the rule is you're not supposed to say anything rude about somebody. So John McCormick, who is a very clever guy, I guess, when, I, he's an example of a guy who stayed too long, so I never knew what a great debater he'd been, and he said the gentleman whom I hold in minimum high regard, as uh, Jeff just quoted. Um, yeah, Newt Gingrich, he is, uh, he is the author. Newt Gingrich came to Congress in the late 80s. He's a man of no principle whatsoever. He was a moderate Republican, and then he became a right winger, and he's gone all up and down. Um, he decided that the Republicans would never be able to take over unless they demonize the Democrats. That, uh, and, and he forced out the then minority leader, Bob Michael, because he was too friendly to Tip O'Neill. He said, you don't talk about the Democrats as reasonable people with whom we disagree. They're evil, they're corrupt, they're, they're treasonous, they're immoral. Uh, he was also a great destroyer of reputations. And I think he's the one, uh, there's a very good book by Martin and Sue Tolchin, um, giving him the, the blame for, for this. He is, that's when politics started to get sour. and and partisanship became excessive uh, rather than being an important factor, as it should be when it's healthy, Uh, and and he introduced the most negative elements.
1: It's progressed from there, but he's he's the the author of it. Um, I think it's fair to say that when uh, Barney Frank announced that he was leaving the House, there were probably several, maybe a couple of hundred sighs of relief on the other side of the aisle that they no longer had to face the prospect of dueling with Congressman Barney Frank. For the rest of us, even those of us in the pure and neutral t- field of journalism, <laughs> losing a figure like Barney Frank, if you love politics, was like kind of when Derek Jeter retired. <laughs> Barney, thank you. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.